For this first Faith Angle podcast of the new year, we thought we'd try something a little different, recapping a two-day conference of 16 international journalists and five speakers in France, with a window into some of the especially compelling insights that emerged on national populism, anti-Semitism in Europe, particularly in France, impact investing and the growth of religion in sub-Saharan Africa, and finally, a big think conversation about the commonalities faced by creative minorities in today's pluralistic world. David Brooks gave a wonderful talk on that last topic, and we're going to start by replaying for you his 17-minute reflection in full. Faithful listeners to this podcast will likely recall that David is one of the program's founding advisors, and in addition to coming on this podcast once before to talk about his best-selling fifth book, The Second Mountain, he's written as a New York Times columnist since 2003 and appeared as a weekly commentator at the PBS NewsHour since 2004. His comment about Faith Angle Europe was that it's a little bit like things were in America two decades ago, the very beginning when journalists weren't thinking at all about religion. That element gives a kind of added dynamism to these conversations, and in this case, a talk amongst peers at the closing luncheon. Enjoy. And I'm going to start in the bishop's honor with some scripture from the book of Jeremiah. And the situation is the Jews have been exiled from what is now Israel. Solomon's temple has been destroyed and they, they're all sent off to Babylon. And Jeremiah gives them some instructions on how to live in exile. And so the passage is, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Pray the Lord, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And that idea, seek the peace and prosperity of the city you're in, according to Rabbi Sachs, from whom I got this, was a very original idea. The idea that you could be what Sachs calls a creative minority. That you could be in a city, not of it, but contributing to it, even while being a separate group. And it's occurred to me over the last day and a half that this sense of being a minority, the sense of being in exile, is now an almost universal sensation. That everybody in some way or another feels like they're a minority. And I think this has come about and have a minority mentality. And this has come about in part because of demographic change. We're in a lot of countries where there is no dominant demographic majority. Loosening restrictions on gender identity. So a lot of people feel they're part of gender minorities. Uh, secularism. Religious people, certainly in Europe, but also in the U.S., evangelicals feeling they're a minority. Uh, meritocracy, a lot of people who were in the middle class consider themselves minority in a culture run by the highly educated elites. And then just sent, so, loss of social trust, as Matthew was saying. When you feel you're in a distrusting society, you, you feel like you can't trust the established institutions, and you feel a little like a persecuted minority. And then finally, um, Minority status, as Matthew said, I thought one of the things that's worth the trip, that sentence where you said, when you defined wokeism as the sacralization of minorities, and that, that was a very good description, I think, not on the right and on the left, where people seek out minority status, even if they're not, and Thomas and I would agree, I'm not sure other people would agree, but this concept of people of color 
is 80% of the world saying, yeah, we're oppressed minorities, <laughs> but it's 80% of the world. And in my view, the phrase people of color adheres to no reality. The people in the different communities have very different lives, very different stories, very different statistics about them. But it's the assumption, no, I'm a minority. So I began thinking over the course of the last day and a half, so what is the minority mentality? And I think we've heard ripples of what it is throughout the conversation. The first, awareness. If you're a member of minority, you're just more aware of your surroundings than you were if you assumed the majority, and identity is not a problem for you. Second, an acute awareness of status arrangements, an acute awareness of how your, your group is being treated versus other groups. So it's a comparative mentality, as well as an acute fear of loss of group identity. That when you're a minority, you're afraid of being assimilated into the mass and losing your group identity. So how do groups react to being in minority status? Well, Jews have long experience with this. There was a time when the Maccabees were fighting the Hellenists, when the, Hellen the Hellenic and Roman empires were big, and they broke off into four different tendencies, which I think are extremely common for minority groups. First, there were the assimilationists, the people who basically liberalized so much they almost shed their group identity. Second, retreat, get as far away from the dominant group as possible. So in, in those days, Jews went to the deserts of Ben Israel, they went to Qumran, they went to the caves, and they retreated. Third, combat, fight the majority, and that's what the Maccabees did. They fought. They demanded a sort of pure identity of Jewish authenticity, and they fought. And then fourth, hybrid, be a Jew in the city. And I think that's sort of what Jeremiah is asking us to do, to embrace a layered identity which is Jewish but still of the city. Now, Jeremiah should have gone into more detail. <laughs> because how you actually do that is actually unclear and has been the source of contention. Uh, how much do you assimilate? Who's a good Jew and who's betraying the Jews? Uh, you have multiple loves that pull you in opposite directions. You have an intense fear of rejection for the dominant culture that you're trying to assimilate into. You have anxiety, you're betraying your own group. You have anxiety about will you survive in pluralism, will your group survive? and you have self-complexity that become a parallel force. And I think all minority groups, and now that's almost everybody, go through this psychological process. The two minorities I know best, one I'm part of and one I have lived around all my life being American, are blacks and Jews. Blacks and Jews have a lot of experience with minority. <laughs> and I think both have, in both communities, there's all these four tendencies, or in all four. All four. And so for Judaism, Jews are used to living in places where cultures, where civilizations combine. If you're a minority group, it's just safer to be in Istanbul than it is to be in a homogeneous place. And so you live at these cultural verges, is the word, where you get extreme dynamism of culture. And so we talk about Saul Bellow and Philip Roth, putting aside how they treated women, they're wrestling with how to be Jew in America and how to be both those things. And so I think it has a tremendous propulsive force, a very creative force to be a creative minority it really drives an intense dynamism. And so you got all these Jewish Nobel Prize winners, movie directors, writers, intense achievement, as people are both trying to fit in and stand out. My own story, I had a great uncle named Irving Browning. He lived uh, in the Heights, in uh, Washington Heights, where Lin-Manuel Miranda is from. And he became a movie director in the 20s. Uh, and he, that was when they made movies on the beach in Atlantic City. And he made Westerns. 
And so he directed Westerns. And when you went to, with all the big Hollywood stars in that era, Valentino, Lillian Gish, all these people, went to his apartment in the Heights, it looked like you were in Montana in 1860. It was all Western gear. He had rifles, he had powder horns. You, you really felt you were, there was a big picture of him in chaps with a lasso. He just loved the West. The man himself never went west of the Hudson River. He had no idea what he was talking about. But, and that's very common. There's a book called How Jews Invented America, that they had this imagination of what America was, and they invented it. And then the cowboys said, okay, that's how we behave. So they, they put on chaps and that last and stuff like that. And so that's a creative minority. And Thomas and I are fans of a guy named Albert Murray, a black writer. Uh, who was friends with Ralph Ellington and other, and uh, he, he wrote this book we both admire called The Omni-Americans. And it's about how blacks were a creative minority in America. And one of my favorite passage about that is about the blues and the blues culture. And he says, when you're swinging the blues, you are not avoiding the hard parts about being black in America, but you're facing them with a heroic and exemplary response. And that's a good description of what creative minorities do. And so, I think it has also led to insane dynamism. I mean, one fact I was thinking about last night, I hope this is not a dangerous fact, when you think about the most famous human beings on Earth over the last 40 years, so in the 70s, Muhammad Ali was probably the most famous human being on Earth. In the 80s, Michael Jackson. In the 90s, Michael Jordan. In the 2000s, Barack Obama. So like Americans are 5% of the world, African Americans are 12% of that 5%. So how weird is it that the most famous human beings for four decades were African-Americans? Like that, that shows a lot of dynamism. Uh, and that's setting aside all the other ways our culture is shaped. So to me, the 90s, I felt very nostalgic for the 90s as we've been talking. <laughs> because like, you know, it was peaceful. I was in Europe, you know, the wall was falling down. And we all thought we were gonna have layered identities. We thought pluralism had won. Then along comes 9-11. And a lot of doctors and engineers decided, no, I'm not for a hybrid identity. I'm going to invent a past for my own culture, and then I'm going to destroy the others. And uh, so liberalism became a problem. Multiple identities became a problem. And Mark had said, which I wrote down, it's the plasticity of the Jews that is the problem. You never know who they are. They can be capitalist or communist, but they're still Jewish. The plasticity is synonymous with modernity. That's what Jews are. And that's not only true of Jews, I think that's true of a lot of our different groups. And that we've come to stand for uh, modernity, stand for layered identities. Uh, and that has been rejected by a lot of people. First, the rejection of, it, of layered identity for being a wave of uh, ruthless cosmopolitanism. That was Albert Murray in the back. Uh, second, a rejection of hybrid individualism within groups, groups within groups saying, you're not authentically whatever, and enforcing boundaries, that you can't be hybrid, that means you're not really one of us. Third, and I was just at the National Conservatism Conference, and their core argument was, you people with layered identities, yeah, you're living in a fantasy land. The world is not really like that. The world, the story of history is a story of combat between groups. We really do not have the luxury of hybrid identities. Uh, they despise us, they're out to get us. You hybrid people, you pluralistic people are abandoning the barricades. You gotta stand strong with us in one unitary force. Uh, 
And I mean, Mark also said he got isolated because of his Jewish name and his magazine at the Rolling Stone of France. And that's like, no, we're in the barricades. We can't afford this. Your people are it's You're either oppressor or oppressed. Uh, and fourth, there's a tendency to simply see over pluralism to the other extreme. So for the national conservatism, moderates don't really exist. There's the woke army and then there's their army. And all the people in the middle are sort of invisible and rendered invisible in their worldview. And they want Manichaean combat and they make it so. And finally, there's a fear from people who, whose identity is formed by nationalists binding creeds that these creeds are being weakened, that they're being replaced by nothing, that there's no core to the nation if you weaken and pluralize the identity. So how will this wind up? Well, here, I don't know what I'm talking about, and none of us do, but just a few speculations. One is I remain, for those of us on the pluralistic side who believe in hybrid identity with all its difficulties, I still think we're the majority. The, somebody quoted the More in Common study, and I wrote a column on it called The Rich White Civil War because the people who are the most Manichaean on either side are rich, highly educated white people, both on the left and on the right. And the people in the middle are dealing with it, and I think they're finding a way. And I think the woke are, what we call it, to the extent we're using that word as shorthand, that's like 8%. I think the Trumpian, the hardcore national conservatives were like 8%. The rest of the people are just trying to figure out something in between. Second, as I mentioned to somebody last night, I have awesome faith in the power of capitalism to co-opt all our ideologies. And so, to me, woke capitalism or national conservatism, capitalism will co-opt that. What started out as Led Zeppelin is now playing at the Safeway. Like, I think that'll happen. And third, I just think for people on, with these unitary identities on the populist side or on the, what they think of as their opposite side, there's just a crime of anecdotalism. Like you find a story a day on Twitter that offends your sensibility and you take those story a day and you wield it into a view of reality. And so I would say, I don't know what it's like for the populace in Europe, when there was an attack on the schools being co-opted uh, in Virginia by, you know, Ibram Kendi, it was never clear to me, and frankly I haven't seen good reporting on this, how much of that is actually happening. I really don't think it's happening all that much. I mean, there are clear racial categories have shifted, but it's really hard to tell how big the problem is. And so most, most school classrooms, I'm sure they're like nice teachers who believe in America but want to teach about race. Like, this is not hard. <laughs> and so I have a, a basic belief that's all going to calm down. And so I remain, which is my job at the New York Times, of <laughs> uh, being wildly, irrationally and hopelessly optimistic. People dismiss me constantly for that reason. And then finally, I would say, the side of pluralism has begun rallying. So wisdom of crowds, persuasion, frankly, the Atlantic, to some degree, like a third of the New York Times. <laughs> and so I do think, and I'll close with this, is that what needs to happen is there needs to be a, we had this debate about culture and economics. And in my background, I think about those two things, but I think more about spirituality and psychology. So in this talk, I've tried to talk about the psychology of being a creative minority. But I think the gap and what people are really panicking about is a sense of spiritual vacuity, that they're losing a spiritual core that tells them how to be a good person. And I was drawn to Bishop Zach's emphasis on human dignity. And I've been helped, I think the fundamental thing we need now is a common moral vision that does not go out of the culture war. 
that is not part of that dynamic one way or the other. And in searching for that thing, and that's what a lot of people in this room does, my wife's magazine comment is really all about that, how to be spiritually rich in angry times. And Anne's magazine doesn't fight the culture war, it just is different. It's trying to be positive and progressive and figure out common problems. And the bishop's emphasis on human dignity, I've, you know, I really think it all comes down to, and the question is whether a secular society can embrace this, is made in the image of God. If you treat everybody like they're made in the image of God, you'll treat them well. And the question is whether that's possible to do that in secular societies. And I tell my secular friends, you know, there's some piece of you that has no size, weight, color, or shape, but gives you infinite value and dignity. You don't have to believe in God to believe this. And that's your soul. And if you treat people like they have souls, then you'll end up treating them well. But somehow that spiritual vacuum, I think, has to be filled. And I've been helped, just for the French people in the room, by a movement called personalism, which grew up in the 1930s in France, led by people like Emmanuel Manier, Jacques Maritain, maybe a little followed up by Jean-Paul II. And it is, it's an entire philosophy and social movement based on the dignity, the infinite dignity of each person, a refusal to see people as groups only. And to me, we've overgrouped <laughs> and returned to a moral vision based on that system is the way out of the populist versus left nationalist war. So that's my summary. The columnists, editors, and reporters participating in this Europe Forum come from England, France, Germany, Italy, Poland, and the United States. So it was the experiences of these six countries that guided much of the impromptu conversation that followed a pair of 25 to 30 minute talks around each topic. Here's Shadi Hamid, a Muslim journalist at the Brookings Institution who hosts his own terrific podcast, The Wisdom of Crowds, and writes regularly at The Atlantic and elsewhere discussing how liberal democratic politics in Western countries have clearly become more existential. When I listen to a conversation like this, I'm reminded of what um, living in the Middle East was like in the Arab Spring, where all politics was basically cultural identity and religion-based, even though obviously economic issues for the average person were terrible and if you asked an ordinary person, you know, what you really care about, they'd probably say unemployment, poverty, or whatever. But I have actually very, very little recollection of ever hearing an economics-based debate on the national level in Egypt or Tunisia during that period. And in some ways at that time, I thought that was unique, and I thought America and Europe were different. But what's interesting is that essentially we're having, I mean, it's different in certain ways, but Politics is existential in, in Western democracies now in a way that very much reminds me of the Middle East, which raises the question if that is sort of the natural state of politics and what we saw where left-right economic policy issues that seemed like you could split the middle on them, that was an aberration. And now we're sort of returning to the norm of what politics really is at some fundamental level. Because if populist parties continue being as significant as they have been in recent years, it just raises the existential tenor of politics. Every election feels more weighty. It feels like something fundamental is at stake because something fundamental is at stake. So my worry there is that it will have profound effects on democratic stability because if you see the other side winning as being personally threatening, 
you're going to be less enthusiastic about respecting democratic outcomes. I mean, maybe in places like Germany and elsewhere in Europe where you have parliamentary systems that can lower the temperature, but where it's more winner takes all, like in the U.S., I mean, I really do worry about what will happen if Trump wins in 2024 and what that leads to in terms of a loss of faith in the democratic idea where it's like, well, if Trump won twice, then do we really believe in, in democracy? So I'm just curious how you would reflect if you kind of take the analysis to the implications of democracy. Can we live indefinitely with existential politics, one election after the other, where um, it's not just the policies that are at stake, but the who we are questions, because we don't really agree on who we are anymore. And most that's fundamentally what we're talking about here in the US or in France or, or in Germany, what's at stake is what it means to be German. What is German identity? What is the American idea? And those are very difficult to resolve through normal democratic politics because it's hard to split the middle on them. So even if it is stable, as you're saying, Matt, that these parties will be around you know, for the foreseeable future, I mean, that has implications because populist parties provoke very strong reactions on the other side, sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly. I think there's many people in these countries who aren't willing to live with results if the results keep on producing populist victories. And that's a problem on, I'm not to say that I'm an anti-populist, but for those of us who don't vote for populist parties, we're not very good at respecting the legitimacy of populist outcomes or populist parties winning. Emma Tucker, a senior editor at the Sunday Times in London, asked Professor Matthew Goodwin of the Legatum Institute and Ed Luce, U.S. national editor at Financial Times, what comes next on the populist front, especially in places like her native U.K., where Brexit is now the reality and where populist victories have already been won. On this issue of, you sort of paint a picture of populism being here to stay. Okay, that maybe that's true, but what will the battleground be? Because if you're a populist party, you come in with a mission. But over time, you know, you, how do you keep that going? Will it just be that electorates become one populist party or elections become one populist party versus another populist party? I'm, I'm just curious to know what the battleground will be. Because each of the populist movements that we've talked about have had a very specific motive. So in Britain, it was Brexit. In France, it's been anti-immigration. But what happens when they've sort of dealt with that? We've dealt with Brexit now. So what will be the battleground for populism in Britain, for example? Mm. And I think that's just a reminder that when we look at this through the longer lens, or sort of wider lens, and look at over the longer term, actually, the tectonic plates are moving continuously and are opening up democracies that historically didn't really have these movements to begin with. And on the economic point, something, the reason I don't put all my chips into that bag is look at Switzerland, very prosperous, very affluent, high quality of life. Swiss People's Party has been a very durable, present political party that has really mobilized many of the same issues, many of the same themes. Levels of inequality in relative terms are very low in countries that have also seen these movements break through, Sweden, Netherlands being two examples, Austria being another one, historically fairly low levels of inequality compared to some of their counterparts, but have nonetheless seen these movements break through. And it's because immigration and demographic change is, in my view, a much more potent driver of support for these movements. And so when I look ahead, you know, you look at, say, the Pew Research Center, very reliable, rigorous, independent agency, and it looking at how 
European societies are going to evolve over the next 20, 30, 40 years. And some of the debates that that is going to cause, I don't think we've really begun to have those debates. To give you one example, the capacity of Islam, particular types of Muslim communities within Europe, it's a very different experience from America, to adapt to essentially you know, Western values on same-sex rights, women's rights, all of those issues, we haven't really begun to get into it. We've touched around it, around schools in Birmingham, and those kinds of issues, but we've not really got into those kinds of debates. And in the same way, I was unfortunately not able to hear the talk this morning, but I imagine around the conversation to do with more, there was a discussion of segregation and cultural distance between groups within French society. I'm less optimistic than Ed. I don't see a country in Europe currently that has really come up with a really rigorous approach to integration that appears to work. Maybe the jury's out, maybe Germany will do that. Let's see what happens over the next 10 years. Maybe Denmark is another route where it's a much more hands-on assertive, some might say hardline approach to integration where communities are almost forced to live together and to integrate and children at schools are forced to attend schools where there is a good balance between different groups. You know, these are the sorts of things that I think we're going to end up actually talking about increasingly as we go forward. Again, Ed Hussein's book, I just want to say it's brilliant on this, you know, talking about the experience of young British Muslim children essentially going through their lives, never interacting with somebody from outside of that community at school, at the mosque, their evenings, their weekends. And that, I suspect, will give these movements. It will be ugly, but it will give these movements ongoing potential. And on the other side, the narratives about who we are, because most people do not want to live in countries where they are told over and over again that they are white supremacists, racists, and they should feel bad about their national community. And I think we need to somehow carve out a much more balanced narrative. Want to weigh on this too? Yeah, I just want very quickly want to say, I don't want to give the impression, I think, as you put it, Matt, that all my chips are in the economic basket. What I was trying to do is sort of counterbalance that this is all a cultural thing. And I think with Germany and Ireland in particular, that there is a civic education system there. There's a national culture that is aware of the risks of playing with fire in your politics. That I don't think in the most of the English speaking world, particularly Britain and America, that we have. I think we've got no memory of being occupied or losing a war or revolution. Or, and I think in Ireland, they're aware politics can sometimes come with bullets. And in Germany, for reasons I don't need to elaborate, yeah. there is a deep fear of populism, except in East Germany, which hasn't had the same civic education system for most of, well, until it reunified with Germany. And of course, Austria, sees itself as a victim of Nazi Germany rather than a co-conspirator. So for sure, this is bigger than just economics. And I think national narratives and national culture and how we think about who we are and the, all the range of possibilities available as to who we decide we are and what limits there are to it is a huge, hugely important piece of this in addition to the economics. If our conversation about the global wave of national populism brought cause for a new, perhaps more sympathetic, learning by an incredibly bright group of journalists, the matter of rising anti-Semitism, what fuels it, what seems to lay underneath that most peculiar hatred, conjured up a kind of visceral confusion and anathema. Here's Carolina Wigura, 
founding editor at Kultura Liberalna in Poland, asking Mark Weitzman, the author of 12 books, including most recently, Hate, the Rising Tide of Anti-Semitism in France, about how anti-Semitism functions almost like an epistemology in itself. Whilst listening to you, I was also thinking all the time about the social role that such anti-Semitic statements and programs are actually playing. I couldn't help but thinking about René Girard and his scapegoat mechanism Mm -hmm. when he says that whenever a certain turmoil takes place in a society and whenever a certain change, a very deep change is taking place in a society, then the mechanism of the scapegoat appears again. And it seems that it also plays an important social role, namely that if people are unable to solve the problems where they are dealing with, they try to de-differentiate, as he says. So they try to regain safety by choosing a scapegoat. And so the question about anti-Semitism in France and also in other European countries is what is the role of it? The neurobiologists often say that if there is a pathological mechanism in our brain, you, you, you cannot eradicate it unless you understand what role it serves. What is being done by this mechanism. Why, in other words, the voters of Mr. Zemmour, for example, they are so much in favor of him. What needs does he fulfill that are not fulfilled by the other politicians who are more liberal? To answer simply, it provides a... Professor David Nirenberg in his book uh, Anti-Judaism says that anti-Judaism and later anti-Semitism is a, the only form of hatred that's also an epistemology. It provides answer. It's a mode of knowledge. When you're lost, you're looking for answers, and, that, and the answers of the Jews being responsible for what's wrong is going back at least to the French Revolution. Joseph de Maistre and others wondering what had happened to the normal order of things needed an answer that would be of metaphysical order. The answer was the devil, and the legions of the devil were the Jews, the the Freemasons, and the Protestants in that case. Today, you have something a little bit similar. Yeah, as I said, anti-Semitism is the form of knowledge. It provides a key to figure out what's going on. When you look at Torrent's manifesto, the killer of New Zealand, for instance, he killed Muslims. But in his manifesto, he explains that he has nothing against Muslims, per se. He has something against migrants and the people that are using migrants to impose their orders on the world. And those people in his manifesto are the Jews. So even though he killed Muslims, the enemy is the Jew. You can find that pretty much anywhere among these the Islamists today and what I call post-fascist forces in Europe. After 45, the extreme right networks gathered in Belgium, in France, and elsewhere in Italy, and defined a new analysis according which Europe was occupied, not by the Nazis who had just been defeated, but by the Americans that wanted to impose their, and international bankers. In their minds, of course, these bankers were Jewish also. And by the 70s, this logic had driven them to look for new alliances 
And by the 80s, these new alliances would be between former fascists and former communists and former fascists and Islamists, so that the new rights, for instance, in France always advocated for an alliance with the Iranians. For Under the same argument that you have to destroy the people that manipulate the world order, and those people are the Jews. So basically, in a nutshell, yeah, what this hatred provides is an explanation for what's wrong in the world. Of course, this trend has sometimes moved Jews to the political right for reasons of security or out of fear, perhaps otherwise, as Anne Elizabeth Moutet, a Paris-based columnist at The Telegraph, asked both Mark Weitzman and Jeff Goldberg, editor-in-chief at The Atlantic, to address. I would like, when staged, for us to address the fact that the end of a very long tradition of Jews being mostly on the left, Republican left, center left, extreme left, they now feel safer with the right. And I would posit that one of the reasons why there is this sort of a natural attraction for Eric Zemmour among part of the Jews, but it's a question that also exists in America. You have lots of Jews who are Trumpistas and not only because of Israel. That's something that we see in other places in, you know, about Eastern Europe. That's really a question that I would ask. Why do Jews now feel more safer on the, on the right? As for the uh, why do Jews go on the right, there are many answers. I mean, the obvious answer is the evolution of the left everywhere. You know, Jeff told about the anti-Zionism and, and the evolution of the left since uh, in the last 20 years, probably. The paradox is that the peace process of the 90s was praised by the left that didn't seem to realize that it was basically a liberal project. It was a capitalist it was under logic of it all, was globalization. And when it fell apart, the left suddenly realized that globalization was bad and that the peace process hadn't been great to begin with and that the only solution was, the, was to be anti-Zionist. That said, I don't think at all that the attraction of the Jews for Eric Zemmour is just standing on a disappointment with the left. First of all, the Sephardic Jews have always been on the right. They didn't wait for the left to change to be on the right. There's a lot of resentment, a lot of unspoken rage because they were thrown out of Algeria in 1962. They hate the Muslims and they don't have the same historical memory toward the Shoah. They don't really care about the Shoah, if truth being told. They don't think that, because a lot of them are religious also, there is this tendency to believe that Hitler came uh, because Jews were too assimilated in Europe. They were not good Jews. And somehow, it's God's will. So there is that among Sephardis. It's there. The Shoah is not supposed to be their problem. What their problem is, is that they, that they hate against the Muslims. They don't even care when Zemmour talks about the children that were killed at the Ozar Hattori school as non-French when he insults Jews, when, when he insults the victims, when he says degeneratory things against Sandler, who was the grandfather of, the, of some of the children that were killed there, they don't even care about that. So you can't explain that just because of the, because of the, the disappointment with the left. I don't know the, what, what the, these guys have in mind, but they just like the way Zemmour speaks when he speaks fascist discourse, that's it. In that way, it's very, I think it's, it's very different of the Jews 
voting Trump, for instance, because it's not the same past. There is not the same background, and Trump is not Jewish. And, and I'm not sure you can compare, really, the evolution of the French Jews. In the American context, at least, I don't want to overstate Jews fleeing to the right in the American context. I mean, one of the many differences between Benjamin Netanyahu and Barack Obama is that Barack Obama always got the majority of the Jewish vote. Netanyahu never broke 25% of the Jewish vote in Israel. And so you see every four years there's a journalistic trope. Is this the election where the Jews move to the right? And, you know, the Republican Party usually does between 20 and 30% of the Jewish vote. Nothing really ever changes. Reagan was a high point, I think. So I don't want to overstate it. All that being said, the interesting thing about France is how much it relates, this electoral dynamic relates to the electoral dynamic in Israel. The majority of Jews in Israel are refugees from Arab countries or descendants of refugees mm -hmm. from Arab countries. The Ashkenazi elite, Tel Aviv, believes that these poor Sephardim, the Mizrahim, the, the Jews of the East, literally is what Mizrahi means, are operating or laboring under this false consciousness that the left is not good for them. You know, the classic sort of, there's a level of condescension built into that relationship. The Sephardim, as refugees from Arab countries where they were, from which they were expelled, believe that the right in Israel has the answers for them. It's very similar to, let's say, the, the Jews of Sarcel as opposed to the Jews of central Paris or something, you know, where they're living next door to gangs that have been infected by the virus. Mm -hmm. Whether they're, they're not ISIS, they're not this, they're not that, but they, they've been infected by this virus, and so they vote their immediate interests. I mean, every country, obviously, there's a different electoral dynamic, but I think in the French example, it's very interesting because it so closely mirrors what happens in Israeli voting patterns. On our second day together, we turn from a hard look at these nettlesome realities, resurgent anti-Semitism, a populist wave that brings clear challenges to current norms, even if, as Professor Goodwin sometimes expanded our minds to appreciate, it perhaps comes as a corrective to political trends that in recent decades alienated large groups of voters from minorities, from immigrants, and from our increasingly neoliberal economics. Instead, we pivoted to a clear look at innovations in sub-Saharan Africa and other parts of the developing world, where investors are partnering with local communities that are learning to draw upon the incredible power of not only religion, but as Anglican Bishop Zach Narengi of Uganda described through firsthand story, also faith, which is different. Here's Bishop Zach discussing the simplicity and relational quality of faith, which differs from many institutional religious things, but is for him a deep foundation for seeing the transcendent dignity of another person. I discovered that, therefore, it is important for me to find a different way of thinking, understanding, and I found the whole idea of faith liberating. Because faith is about relationship. Religion is often about institutions, structures, systems, rituals, processes that delineate that create us and them, creating separate, definable groups. And I'm not suggesting that we therefore must expand all religion. It's important to understand that religion itself is embedded within it some forms of politics of division, the building of wars, wars that divide a people. That's our experience on the continent. And yet, faith as a relationship, faith as that which seeks 
the good in everyone. Why? Because if it's any faith at all, it's a connection, a relationship with the transcendent. And there is in each one, every human being, a transcendent reality. So to recognize transcendence is not just the transcendent of the other, creator, redeemer, sustainer, the invisible, but also the transcendence in each one of us, the recognition of that. And that itself is an act of faith. It is elsewhere spoken to as dignity, human dignity, and I'll come back to that thought uh, later. So faith sees, faith has eyes that recognize not the other, but one, a recognition of a shared humanity, a shared solidarity as one human family. And finally, if Bishop Zach made a strong case for faith, and in this season of his life, a way that's preferable to religion, David Brooks offered a tempered case in response that argues for the value of religious structure, integrity, and institutional grounding. Take a listen. Okay, I want to take a once-in-a-lifetime chance to defend religion to a bishop. Uh, <laughs> and I say it with the, first with the supposition that every religious person I know is often disgusted by their own institutions. But that's because the institutions are human institutions, and so they're going to be flawed. The second thing to say is that in my reading of history, religions don't fight each other, groups fight each other. And religions happen to be a group, so sometimes they fight each other, but more often nations fight each other and more often kinship. And religions have a tendency to fight each other less than nations in my reading of history, and Rabbi Sachs wrote a book about this. But I do say whether we have good religion or bad religion matters, and that we need a good religion. My favorite definition of a commitment, making a commitment, is falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it for those moments when love falters. So Jews love their God, but they keep kosher just in case. Uh, and we need those structures of behavior. The second thing religions are really good at is passing down knowledge and discernment. And frankly, I think Jews and Catholics do this a little better than Protestants. But it's the wisdom of the ages that gets passed down in the interpretation of the Bible. And I think religions are just fantastic in that. And if you seek to have a personal encounter with God without the history of thought and the, what the history of theology without the history of doctrine, it's hard. <laughs> and it's probably going to be, in my view, weak and not durable. Fourth, religion organizes knowledge across generations. And a religion, the institutions, like any institution, is if you want to make change, you have to make change across from generation to generation. And you need an institution. And finally, I'm going to read a quote from a passage from a friend of Jeff and mine on how the institutions of religion changes you. And this quote is from David Wolpe, who was a synagogue out in Los Angeles. He writes, spirituality is an emotion. Religion is an obligation. Spirituality soothes. Religion mobilizes. Spirituality is satisfied with itself. Religion is dissatisfied with the world. And I do think that the hard call and the obligations of institutional religions that is felt by monks and nuns who do these heroic things is necessary for faith to be healthy. And that has been my personal experience. So that, that's my quick defense of religious institutions and the necessity for them. And I understand I come from a certain background, you come from a very different background, but that would be my defense. That's a good bit to chew on for one podcast, but in case one of your New Year's resolutions is still more great podcast content, 
I'm happy to assure you that all three three-hour talks and extended conversations with 16 international journalists and fellow speakers are linked in the show notes, as is a two-minute video highlighting a few more takeaways and reflections from this second European forum. For what it's worth, we plan to host four conferences in 2022, and as often as possible, afterwards we'll upload the content each time so it's available for your edification and your feedback. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support and happy new year. Faith Angle exists to open connections between leading journalists, scholars, and clerics. Thanks for listening.